O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me on the, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They surround me like bees. They blaze like the fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord is valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. Open me to the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. So I didn't really know there was an Old Testament, but apparently that's a thing. <laughs> Luckily, Trey is here. We started on the road to Jerusalem last week and eventually to the cross and to the resurrection by reading the, uh, you know, Luke, the parable of uh, the Minas and the story of Zacchaeus. And, you know, the basic point was uh, something that like uh, the road to Jerusalem gives us a sense of the kingdom. It gives us a sense of the king and it gives us a sense of what it means to be a good subject. So that was kind of the shtick. Zacchaeus is the example of the good subject for the kingdom. He's a guy that's kind of, I don't know, ill repute maybe, but it turns out that uh, he, like a child, uh, seeks after Jesus, and in doing so, uh, Jesus declares him, as only a king can, which I think is a fairly important point, but Jesus is exercising an awfully important authority here, declares him a son of Abraham and a citizen of the kingdom, because he has pursued him like a child, and he's given himself over to, well, what are the three things he does? He says he's going to pay back the people that he wronged, he says he's going to give up his possessions, and he commits himself to following Christ. So he's given up what he has to do justice, to follow the king, and to love other people. So when we get back to the text in Luke 19, next week we'll talk a little bit more about Zacchaeus as the kind of model of the good subject of the kingdom, and we're going to talk a lot about what the crowd says and what the crowd doesn't say. And I wanted to provide a little context for that. So uh, dig in on uh, the psalm, 
that the crowd cites and talk about what it would have invoked for that audience, what it would have invoked for those readers, and, and what exactly was at stake in it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the Gospels differ on what exactly was said. You know, and truth be told, I imagine there's a crowd, they're chanting, there's a lot of things that are said there. So, you know, John does this scene like John always does. Like, no details, just some theology, a kind of set of the story, and etc. But uh, Matthew and Mark have Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When we look at Luke, there's just blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But I don't think it really, you know, matters substantially for uh, what, uh, and, and kind of the reason why we're talking about Psalm 118 today, because it would have been, uh, I don't know, like a little key or a switch that when folks heard it, they would have heard not only the liturgy that they practiced, but the history of Israel. And it really helped serve as kind of a frame for, and this really struck me in thinking about this week, thinking about the question of home. I mean, one of the biggest things that's at stake here when we think about the procession in Jer- to Jerusalem, oftentimes you've got this narrative that says, well, look, you know, everyone expected a military victory and they thought about Jesus as a political king. There are narratives that say that the crowd is embracing Jesus. There are narratives that say that the crowd is rejecting Jesus. And ultimately, the kind of way we think about the crowd on the path to Jerusalem and think about the reactions from the Pharisees and the disciples and all that, of course, it's about the sovereignty of Jesus. Of course, it's about the character of Jerusalem. Of course, it's about the character of the kingdom. But I think that in reading Psalm 18, one of the things that it really struck me with is it's about the character of home, what it means to find a home in Jerusalem. So uh, the only other thing <coughs> that I want you to remember as we kind of go through the psalm, and I'll, I'll mention this again, whatever was said, uh, you know, if we kind of make a compilation of what the crowd said from the Gospels that mention it, uh, there's a citation of Psalm 118 that omits a part. So blessed, or Hosanna, save us. Uh, then there's something that doesn't get said, and then uh, uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So I want you to just kind of drop a little pin on that in your mind that what's not said or cited from the psalm is uh, important to I think that Psalm 118 and the citation of it is one of the best uh, kind of condensations of Judaism's messianic streak. You know, so like God's role is to secure the nation. God's going to uh, defeat the other powers. God's going to send someone to do it in God's name. And this idea, I think, I mean, I don't know if it's too obvious to say, would have been completely crucial for how the people of Israel understood their history. I mean, we can talk about what it means for us, and it's useful to reflect on what it meant for Israel at the time of its writing and at the time of its circulation. But the folks in the crowd would have immediately connected this citation of the psalm with, it's like basically written into almost every significant part of uh, Jewish ritual life. It's, uh, and I'll talk about uh, the various places where it may have come from in a moment, but it would have invoked for them one of the core stories of Israel. And, and Trey may have some uh, more insight on this, but there's a hot debate about when 118 was written. So some people say pre-exile, most people say post-exile. It's hard to identify exactly where it is. And it's even hard to identify where its usage emerged. So there's like a million different theories about what it was written for. The, some say it was about the fall festivals, some say it was in the new year, others say it was a celebration psalm for military victories, some say it was part of the liturgy for installing a king, some say it was part of the liturgy of the kind of yearly reinstallation of the king, 
I mean, there's all kinds of places that folks have theorized that it came from, but what we do know is that it really kind of shaped the character of Jewish liturgical life, and it's part of a subsection of the Psalms called the Egyptian Hillel. I learned new things. So the Hillel runs from Psalm 113 to 118, and uh, that little run in 113 to 118 is really interesting because it kind of suggests movement, it kind of suggests travel. So 113 starts out with this kind of generic injunction that says, hey, you know, uh, we have to be thankful for the things that Yahweh has done for us. And then 114 kind of points at the movement of Yahweh's people from uh, out of out of Egypt, out of exile and towards uh, Jerusalem, towards the promised land. And then 114 uh, has uh, not only coming from Jerusalem to the promised land, but then. 115 has this kind of idea that Yahweh is going to be praised as the God of a great nation where people will be secure, as opposed to the other nations who have, you know, useless idols or whatever you imagine the other other folks are worshiping. 116 says God's going to save us and return our souls to rest. And it ends with a kind of presentation of sacrifice at the temple. 117 is real short. It's just kind of like lays out what is likely the temple liturgy for praising God for the way that God has protected God's people. But the generic arc of it is to think about the relationship between God and Israel, to think about God bringing the people out of exile, to think about God bringing them to a place where they have a spiritual home, a home in which they could worship, a home in which they could, you know, be the people that they wanted to be without the Egyptians or the Babylonians or all the other folks that waxed them at some point in time. So the point of the Hillel is this kind of crucial story about Israel as a people who are constantly moving between being kicked out of places, being in captivity, wandering, and finally coming back to a place where Yahweh allows them to be home again. Whenever it was written and however it was used, once this thing was on the books, it's used consistently throughout the history of Israel, especially 118. So, you know, uh, there's some evidence used at the pilgrim festivals, there's some evidence that it was sung when folks were sacrificing in the temple, but it, like, it's so significant to the kind of shape and future of Judaism that it's the most cited psalm in the New Testament. Like 18 of the verses of it are cited there, depending on how you count it, this is crazy, 20 to 60 times, which seems like a pretty broad range, right? But scholars are funny about suggesting things. Jesus and the disciples probably recited this psalm before the Last Supper. It was kind of in the lifeblood of the story of Israel. And, uh, you know, it is about finding a place to love and to worship God, finding a kind of place. And this is the thing that was really interesting to me is that when we think about the question of a king, we think about the question of sovereignty, we think about legalities, we think about rulership, and we think about the question of home oftentimes, we think about it, I don't know, in some kind of sentimental ways, like it's nice to have a home and you know what, it likes to, what it's like to feel like you're not home. But in the imagination of the people of Israel, those ideas were much more tightly paired than they are for us. In other words, home's not just a place where you, you know, can walk around in your underwear or rest or watch TV. Home is intimately tied to this idea of having a territory in which God's king is sovereign and in which they're able to practice uh, worship and, and live the life that they want to live. So the vision of home here, which is kind of different from ours, intimately ties this sense of the power and sovereignty of the king, of God's sovereign choice of the king, and finally of a place where people can worship. So home means something, I think, 
bigger for them than it does for us. And I imagine if you are a people that is shaped by the experience of exile, that you know is a fairly uh, a fairly easy reason to see why it is that they make those three things tied so closely together. So think about when Solomon uh, declares in Second Chronicles six, the Lord has said. He would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever where the whole of Israel was standing. And Solomon turns to him and says, uh, he blessed them and says, praise be the Lord God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father, David. For he said, since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe in Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there nor have I chosen anyone to be the ruler of my people on land, but now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I've chosen David to rule my people Israel. I mean, that's, that's how the wisest man ever put it. Like, that's why Jerusalem matters. Jerusalem is this kind of moment, not only of exercising God's sovereign choice, but also a place in which folks had more than just a territory. They had a home, and not just homes individually, but a home for God's people a home with a king and a temple and a place to worship, a home in which God, who previously floated around in a dark cloud or whatever, was now able to abide directly in the city. It's not just land. It's about a larger sense of kind of homeland, of God's presence, of God's rule, and of the communion between God's people. And, you know, like, in the modern world, it's fairly tempting to understand Israel as kind of simply a country that has to fend off all the folks who uh, threaten its security and integrity. But at the root of uh, the idea of Judaism is this, uh, this place where the king sits and where God is able to sit and therefore where the people are fulfilled. Psalm 18 is essentially the kind of end of the journey in the Egyptian Hillel. It's like, in many ways, a credo for what it means to finally find a home. It represents the path to the salvation and perfection of Israel. It's this biblical embodiment to me of the ethos of Passover. You know, Next year in Jerusalem, is one of the most famous sayings for folks who, you know, have, have practiced Judaism now and, and in the past. And the idea of it is that Israel's always understood itself as kind of waiting for finding that place of perfection and that endurance. And that you can imagine, you know, folks of the nation of Israel sitting on the banks of the rivers of Babylon, to quote Bob Marley, or the other places where they've been exiled to. And you can imagine them saying this to lament Israel. And you can imagine them saying this to have, uh, to celebrate the victories of Israel but in the end, the whole idea is premised on God being in the, the king, God's king being in the throne and God being present with the people. That's why 118 starts with, and it isn't a surprise that it starts with the, this theme of endurance. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast house endures forever. And think about it, like, it, it's a, it's a, and, and the word there for steadfast love is, it's the one word I know in Hebrew, <laughs> God's hesed, which sometimes translates as loving kindness, which sometimes translates as mercy and justice. It's this, like, very strange word that I think ultimately is about God's character in conforming to the promises that God's make and the kind of consistency of God in loving God's people. It's the fulfillment of the covenant that embodies the sense of Justice embodies the sense of mercy, embodies the sense of love, embodies all that stuff. So God's hesed endures forever is something that's said by Israel and its king. It's something that's said by Aaron representing the priest. It's something represented by the people. The priest, the king, and the people all kind of center around the enduring character of God's hesed. 
And, you know, it, it, it is, uh, the idea is that the, the culmination of that hesed in a very real sense was a home in Jerusalem. And it was a home where God's eternal hesed could not only be, I don't know, abide, but be realized. Where a vision of what it meant to be Jewish together could really come about. And it, it, it is intimately tied to this idea of folks who wander, who call out to God, and that God responds to them by bringing them home. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord to put, than to put confidence in mortals. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Hesed, and more than that, and as Jewish folks love to say, kind of God's goodness and God's power, God's ability to save and protect and preserve, so overwhelms those other gods out there that it really starts to establish the idea that our God is incomparable, that our God is universal, that our God is not, you know, you don't have to compare our God to Baal or the other nation's gods, but instead that it starts to build this idea that that sense of Israel as a home is also a sense of Israel as a home for and place for the world, which, you know, we'll talk about in the context of of Luke and Acts. The interesting thing in this little run is about the character of God's name. God's name cuts off uh, the people of Israel from the threat that is presented by their enemies. So in verse 10, all nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees, which arrested development fans. So that's weird. They blazed like a fire of thorns, and in the name of the Lord I shall cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and might. The Lord has become my salvation. That idea of the name of God really gives this sense, especially in the kind of Jewish traditions of, you know, they had this weird way of thinking about names. It's why God responds by saying, my name is Yahweh, I am that I am. And name was a way of kind of labeling and or controlling something. But here, the people have access to the power of God's name exactly because God has become their own home, exactly because God has become their own king. And this, it, you know, I, I think the beautiful thing about the psalm, and I know this is probably not a very good kind of uh, Jewish-centered reading, but the beauty of the psalm is that it does imply that the kind of end trajectory for all people is the worship of a God who is a God of the entire world, and it implies this idea of the expansion of Israel, a kind of reformation of the idea of home. But, you know, that's not what it necessarily meant for this community. This community wanted to be out of exile and be back in a place where everything was centered around the character of God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, it's not insignificant that as you kind of go through this narrative in the Egyptian Hillel from God founding God's people to God bringing God's people out of exile and back to the homeland to God uh, establishing a temple and putting a king in the seat that it was supposed to be, that the idea of the stone that was rejected became the cornerstone is a, you know, one of the most beautiful articulations, I think, of the idea that God reverses the fortunes of God's people. You know, I mean, we've all kind of felt like a rejected stone, I imagine, at some point. And the root of this journey home is to take those who have been kicked out, who have been marginalized, who have been beat around by the Babylonians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and to give them a place which implies a sense of security that is rooted in the centrality of God. To the t- It's like a little, uh, a, what, what are those Russian dolls? Yeah, what is it? 
matres- the, the ones that are inside each other? Nesting, yeah. Nesting dolls, right? Like, the vision they have of home is one in which God sits at the center, that God is, abides in the temple, that the temple abides in Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem abide, it abides in the entirety of the world. You know, and the story of both, you know, ties Jewish folks and Christian folks together is the story of being kicked out of places, being kicked out of the garden, being kicked out of the promised land, being, I don't know, crucified by the Romans. Each of these rejected cornerstones, in a way, come back to nest in the character of Jerusalem. God has taken all the fragments of the world and put God back in the center and given an order and not only security, but the possibility for fulfilling hesed, for abiding in the context of God's love. And the ultimate expression then of God's sovereign power is what? Is God in the temple, in Jerusalem, over the character of the world? And to me, that really suggests something that we'll talk about next week, powerful, about Jesus' journey back to Jerusalem. Like the ultimate act of nesting all those things together is to put Jesus in the temple and ultimately to and not only you know kick out all the powers that might hurt Israel, but to refer back to the Zacchaeus thing from last week, to take the enemies of God and literally to slay them in front of him. But we'll return to that when we get to 19. The heart of the idea deep in the imagination of these folks, though, relies on the God being in the temple, the temple being in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem being in the world as a way of kind of re-knitting the world back together, reversing the fortunes of the lost, elevating God's people, and putting everything right. It's a messianic psalm in some sense, but it's one that implies the kind of messianism that we believe in, that the world is made right by being integrated into Jerusalem and finally into Israel through Christ. That the stone that has been elevated is marvelous, but it's the doing of the Lord in the psalm. That God has chosen the rejected is not just like one fact among other potential facts about history. It becomes the kind of point of and place where all history is moving. The road to Jerusalem is in some ways the completion of all of history, even though it you know, exists prior to us. This is the day that the Lord has made. The Hebrew on it is interesting because it's not just, uh, you, can't, you don't only translate that idea of made as uh, being constructed, but you could also translate it as this is the day that the Lord has acted. To me, that's beautiful. The day that the Lord has acted is the day that Jesus comes into the temple and recenters all of Jerusalem and by implication, all of the world around the character of God. The final words of Psalm 118, and you know, the psalm that's cited in Luke, the final words for those psalm are the same that were likely read in the procession towards the temple in Israel's fall rites. So through the gates of righteousness and into the Holy of Holies to celebrate the fact that God the sovereign is in God's resting place and that the day is the whole of the cosmos and the whole of the history comes home and where everything is made one. So even in the Psalm 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But as I mentioned uh, earlier, and I want you to think about it for next week, there's this set of lines that come immediately after that. Verses 25 and 26. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord will bless you from the house of the Lord. And I want to talk a little bit next week about why give us success is not in there. But for now, the psalm recognizes the ways that the world outside the kingdom, for all of us, is a kind of exile. That each one of us mirrors the history of Israel. That each one of us is in some way, by virtue of being in a state of fallenness, outside of that place where there is a perfect nesting between God, the temple, Israel, 
in the world. And Jesus' return to Jerusalem, in many ways, is about recentering the entirety of the cosmos and understanding that the day that the Lord has made, the day that the Lord have acted, is, a, is, a, is about to be fulfilled. You know, whether this psalm was a post-exile or pre-exile psalm, the basic story of it is the story of a God who is trustworthy to fulfill God's promises to God's people, and of a God who is able to give people a home that is much more all-encompassing than just a roof over your head <coughs> or a territory to exist in, but it really is about God's sovereignty making everything in the universe right again. And that's why that idea of hesed is so powerful that the psalm starts out with, because it's not just about what makes us feel at home, it's about what makes the universe right again, because God is at the center of it. It's about making the world again in a way that constitutes the character of the kingdom of love that Jesus imagined. And so whether or not this is a psalm for praising God for restoring their fortunes in a military victory, or a psalm for people who have left Egypt, or a psalm for people who have finally found a home, or a psalm for anyone who is dispossessed, or any of the basic permutations in the story of Israel. It is a psalm that is a mode of worship for a God who brings us all home and makes everything right by sitting at the center of Jerusalem. And there's a kind of constancy built into the idea that our king will save us. There's a kind of beautiful sense of love as not only being the kind of positive feeling of being seen and recognized, but instead of things being reordered in the cosmos so that everything fits in its place. And the challenge that it poses each one of us with is to do the work that Christ calls us to do, to also be agents that make a home for ourselves, for others, and for the kingdom of God. Because God will come, and God will save us, and God will give us success. For now, though, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He will be true to his covenant, and he will make us anew by bringing us home again. Amen. What do you got?